Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Today is a debt jubilee, really the best way of ridding the world of near stagnant growth. Would a reset revitalize the economies of the world? And how do we stop ourselves getting into this situation again? Is the wealth divide part of this problem? And could we fix that with a universal basic income? Is this a possible roadmap for the future or just a reward for those who don't like to work? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Okay, well, Steve, we've talked a fair bit about the idea of a debt jubilee, the, and also we've talked a lot about the idea of a universal basic income as well. So let's look at the two together. Are they two different approaches for two different problems, or can they be combined? Are we also talking hypotheticals in all of this? Because I wonder whether in, in our lifetime, whether we'll ever see either of them uh, come to light. But, you know, let's, let's entertain the idea that we will. But can you mm. cure the debt problem, for example, with a universal basic income? Probably not because uh, the people with uh, with the debt have so much of it. A universal basic income is not going to solve that problem. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the one, I think what uh, you can see with universal basic income, it's a, it's a solution to the, to the symptoms, some of the symptoms, but it's not a solution to the cause mm. because if you look at the uh, income distribution that existed back in the 50s and 60s, substantially more of GDP, and that was lower then, of course, went to workers than it goes to them now. There's been quite a dramatic decline in the share going to workers. And at the same time, um, partly to get over that terrible problem of no income, uh, you know, why not borrow money from a bank and and, and, write, and uh, get on a sure thing of rising house prices? So in the aftermath of that, uh, in, in countries like America, of course, and the UK and elsewhere in the world, people are carrying levels of debt into their retirements they were never carrying before but isn't it isn't it largely the wealthy class that are doing that they're the ones carrying the debt and if we if we pay off their debts they're just going to borrow more aren't they and and there's also the question about if we pay off their debts i mean why are we doing that you know don't they deserve it well um i think the distribution is distribution of debt compared to income is a lot different to the distribution of debt, absolutely. So you certainly have more of the debts carried by people who are wealthy, but the proportional, uh, the, the impact of the debt you're carrying when you're poor, uh, even if it's a lower debt compared to your income, would be much more drastic. Uh, I highly recommend people to take a look at the work of Linda Tirado. I hope I pronounced Linda's name properly. But Linda wrote a book called Hand to Mouth, uh, which is an explanation of what life is like for her or was like for her as a poor person in, uh, in America. And her one of the examples she gives is that one day she had a uh, a uh, a truck get impounded, and she wasn't able to pay the uh, the storage fee that they put on top uh, to get it back out. Finally, lost the truck, lost the job, and and lost the flat she was in in, in quick order. Mm. So, uh, now she's carrying probably a she 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 couldn't get credit card debt, uh, anything like what we would be used to, but. This, at that level of income, it matters to have any debt whatsoever. Right. And, of course, the UBI is more effective at that level. But I think 
you, you've still got people, you know, there's plenty of people who are going into their retirements now who are carrying levels of mortgage debt they never expected to carry, are wondering how they're going to manage that at the same time as paying enough to live. Right. And, uh, and, that, and, that, and that, is because, that is because everything is now so much more expensive, particularly, you know, our houses are so more expensive because we've got more access to debt. So it's become a sort of self-fulfilling spiral. The positive feedback, yeah. 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 And one thing which I uh, – the, the, the element of my Minsky model, which uh, I, I think I can say the real world has revealed it's got the same basic behaviour, is that the increase in the level of debt even though it's it may be paid for, if you can you know, say it's paid by capitalists when they borrow the money and so on, the in, in, income distribution income to that is to reduce the amount of money going to workers. So what you have is that the debt is causing a lower income income share. So in that situation, if you gave a UBI, then you mask the symptom of that redistribution of income caused by the high level of private debt, but you don't you don't address the cause. Right. And so so one follows the other. We have the debt jubilee followed by universal basic income, which would help prevent the problem from emerging again. Is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> I'm saying it's partly the way to go. I mean, I would like – I'm in favour of UBI. Not, I mean, there are, of course, you'll see modern monetary theory is uh, totally committed to the idea of a job guarantee and saying that you get a, you get a job uh, – if you're out of, out of work, then there's a job at a lower pay rate uh, than the – minimum wage but above the poverty line and then you get allocated to work which would normally be in social uh, in social things or or re- greening the planet work of that nature um, and they they've got a I mean a, a strong emphasis you have to be doing work to get the pay the UBI they treat as saying well that's being paid to do nothing mm. and my feeling about that that's is rewarding sloth I heard someone referring it to yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's, you also be, if you give people a UBI you're paying them to do anything mm. this is the other side of it uh, yes I mean if you look at our, our the state of our culture today then there may well be people who say okay that's a great way to just get income sit back at home watch watch uh, watch YouTube and uh, and and not have to work for an income and that's seen as a, ne- a social negative but if you take ourselves right back to our um, you know our our, our beginnings as a species rather than the complicated society we've built now, your status in the social groups we used to live in depended in part on your contribution to everybody else. Mm. Somebody who was a slacker in that and just basically did nothing and expected to uh, receive uh, you know, gifts from the others would ultimately be told to go and, you know, pick up your swag and go go, go right. live on your but own. You can't really yeah. compare. I mean, we're sort of going off the debt thing, but we'll, let's just follow this line for the moment. But you you can't really apply that, though, can you? Because in those days, everyone had to uh, get involved because it was, a, it was a question of survival, whereas in this day and age, you can sit in your old uh, two-bedroom two yeah, flat and watch YouTube and no one will know about it. And if the money's going in your bank, then everyone's blissfully unaware of how little you're doing. But I, but I would like to get to the stage where we try to rebuild what we had in terms of the, what suits our, our our species, and that is where you work for the pleasure of of of, of work and for the pleasure of contributing to your community. Yeah. Which uh, we, we've we've let it that that is part of why people do work. It's uh, we are not an individual species. We're a species that gets its feedback from what we do collectively, and in that sense, that's partially why we can. And we can you know, uh, hire people to do work because they then are transferring that attitude they've got for the community to the entity they work with. It's a corporation, the government, military, et cetera, et cetera. That's a large part of why we do stuff. It is not because uh, we have to be paid to do it. There's a, there's a desire in us 
to contribute to a community, however we define the community. And what's happened, of course, that community has been defined as your the company you work for, uh, the government you work for, the military you work for these days, rather than the community you're part well, of. It would be nice if everyone thought that way. I'm not sure everyone does. I think I think uh, I think you might have a a, v- a view of uh, of humanity that well. Well, anyway, we'll see. But let's I, let's mm. go back to this idea of the debt jubilee first of all, yeah. because obviously the idea of that is if we're carrying so much debt, we are cutting back on our spending, and that has the potential to destroy the economy. But surely it is the average we want to deal with, because if you've got heavy debt, I mean that is your look at, isn't it? We don't want to eradicate eradicate their debt it's it's because they're only going to have a marginal impact on on total spending it's the it's the it's the mass of the population that we're really concerned about so what it would, the idea of my debt jubilee uh, is, is i mean there's all sorts of things that people have said you know this will won't work because of x y and z and some of those are legitimate arguments so if you go back to what debt jubilees used to be in the past and this is where michael hudson's work and david graber's work is very important uh, it was a general forgiven forgiveness of household debt uh, the corporate debts which were back in early samaria uh, the debts in were measured in units of silver for commercial debts they weren't affected it was the debts only of the households and mm. the debts of the households often were actually run up not by actually taking out a loan and not being able to repay it, but by buying things on credit and not being able to pay for it later when the harvest failed. And, pardon me, mead halls and and, and, and beer halls and stuff like that, often a large part of people actually ran up these debts. So it was a case of you know buying on credit, getting to the point where you're supposed to pay on cre- or pay for the credit, not being able to, and then you, your debt is declared and you would become a, potentially become a debt slave. Uh, which means you had to go and work on the property of the person you owed the money to. Yeah, and you become a surf, that, basically. You became yeah. a surf. Effectively, become a surf. Mm. And and that what that meant was that over time, particularly in Samaria, which is where the, where the practice of debt jubilees first began, you can only be uh, invo- you can only be part of the military if you're a freeman. Now, because more and more people were ending up in these debts, they, you know, credit-based debts they accumulated, which they couldn't pay when harvests failed and so on. And, of course, the interest rates charged on debts were, they were charged in fractions. Think like you had to pay uh, one-eighth per, per year uh, if you were lucky. It, it, it might be uh, uh, pay uh, one, one, one sixty-fourth uh, per day, and that would compound dramatically. You'd end up losing your property, um, losing your uh, your capacity to work as a free person, having to work for a serf on the person you borrowed the money for, and then bang, the capacity to defend the empire started to decline. Now, in that situation, um, and a lot of the debts also were owed to the royal institutions, owed to the religious. It was a, mm. a much more complicated society than we, we tend to realise. It was easy for the for the. the, the in, in a way, that the the emperor had two choices: continue insisting on the debts. Uh, and lose the empire, or free the debts and be able to get military to defend the empire. Yeah, and the latter was the choice that was taken, and then it became an automatic thing. Every forty-nine years, every change of ruler, um, there would be a debt jubilee, mm. and that would forgive the household debts, but it kept the corporate debts alive. The corporate debts continued because they were taken out with a view to profit. Um, yes, yeah, some people would fail, but generally speaking, that was part of providing finance for commerce right so you now, kept, the, kept that element yeah. kept that element of risk which you need because the moment you remove that corporate debt then you remove the element of risk involved and and therefore you get uh, ridiculous business decisions <clears throat> made if you believe that somebody's going to write it off for you at some point 
Well, uh, yeah, and 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 this is if you don't have to share in the profits you make, that's also another element which can lead to mm. uh, uh, catastrophic behaviour, as we've seen in the last um, last forty or fifty years. But I, you can't you can't do that sort of that that sort of system wouldn't work today. But we do have we have a, as a monetary system. We have a monetary system now where money is created by two classes of entities: the government through fiscal operations and through QE and things of that nature, using its central bank to create the money. Yeah. And that comes without debt. When you, when you, the, the, the government has to run up some form of matching asset for the liability it's injecting into the economy. But the person who gets the money from the government doesn't have a debt back to the government. So that's why MMT argues that that's uh, government money, government created money is the only way to get a increase in your net financial assets. Right. And that's where the commonality sits between a debt jubilee and a universal basic income because you are funding them by the same means through the, through the okay, government. Funding, funding, funding it by the state's capability, yeah. yeah. Um, now, with a modern debt jubilee, what I would want to do, first of all, is make it per capita. So the amount of money was paid was irrespective of the amount of debt you were in. I would make the, the payment to people in a modern debt jubilee a per capita payment. So yeah. I would get to say, you know, looking at the level of aggregate level of debt, into the seas America is the example. I want to see the level of American debt fall from where it is at the moment, which is about 150% of GDP for the non-financial sector, the, the um, households and non-financial corporations. Mm. I want to see that back to the 50% range. Wouldn't you actually want to look at? Wouldn't you actually want to look at the mean? Wouldn't you want to actually look and say, well, okay, where is the, where are the bulk of people with an affordable and sort of a, a sizable level of debt which is holding back the economy? How can we eradicate it for those people? And then the people at the top end who almost certainly will be in debt because they are doing stuff with financial systems. They're, you know, they are heavy investors and are losing as a result of that. We don't care too much about them because their no, impact on the economy is not going to be so great. Well, I know what I want to do is actually undo the impact that rising debt has had on income distribution. Mm. But again, this is something which comes out of my Minsky modelling. And that is, as I've said many times, when there's an increase in private debts, the working class who pays for it in income distribution terms, capitalists tend to fluctuate around the same rough level of share of GDP. Yeah. Bankers' level rises because the more debt, the more more interest has to be paid on outstanding debt. The income effect washes through onto the workers, the ones who get screwed, whether they borrow money or not. So what I want to do is el- eliminate that particular impact. You eliminate it, first of all, by reducing the aggregate level of debt. And secondly, if you do it on, if you do a distribution on a per capita basis, of course that per capita basis is worth more to poor people and to working class people than it is to the, to the millionaires. And that's that's why I'd rather because we've we've actually accentuated the inequality, not only by allowing the level of private debt to rise as dramatically as it has in America's case, increasing by a factor of five since 1945. Uh, we've also QE has also increased the inequality by rewarding those who currently own shares. Mm. So we have a huge amount of increased inequality, first of all, by uh, the mechanics of finance and secondly, by the the misguided mechanics of central bank money creation under QE. We have two uh, increases in inequality we need to unwind. Right. But there's a real danger, isn't there, that people get the wrong end of the stick on this debt jubilee. And let me give you an example of that, because I watched an interesting interview with Larry McDonald, who's a guy who started the Bear Traps Report. It's an investment newsletter. He also wrote a book on the Lehman Brothers collapse called A Colossal Failure of Common Sense. He's an interesting guy. Okay. He, he reckons a debt jubilee is inevitable, but I think he's talking about a very different type of debt jubilee to the one you're talking about. Have a listen to this. You've got this. Okay. The left is rising and the right is rising, and, and the left especially is very anti-creditor. 
So if you're in the left wing in Europe and you're a millennial, you see the uh, baby boomers of, of Europe have saddled these countries with debt. And these young people are looking at this debt load and saying, over time, each year that goes by, you know, I, I don't, at some point, there's going to be a movement strong enough to walk away from that debt. And that's, if you look back through the history of capitalism, maybe you can explain a little bit too, but um, through, for the last, going back to, in the Bible, there's references right. to debt jubilees. It's a debt reset. And I think that that's what we're heading to in the next, I think anywhere between two to five years to be some type of debt jubilee or debt reset. Right, or debt reset, he was about to say that. Well, I, the thing is, he's talking about there, really, government debt, isn't he? He's saying people, you know, people will be saying, oh, look, we've been saddled with government debt. There's not enough public money for education or for health. Mm, I think mm, what he's mm. talking about, I think what most people see when they see a debt jubilee, they, they sort of say, we need a public sector reset. We need to write off government debt rather than household debt. Do you think that's the way most people see it? I think it is, and that's why, they're, why it's wrong. It's actually the private debt that needs to be written off because the government debt is the other side of government money creation. Um, and yes, you could actually write the debt off or you can make you declare it was an equity. In, in a sense, it's, it's a bookkeeping thing because if you have a national in a national currency and a central bank, then it's quite within the power of the central bank to create the money needed to cancel the government debt, to buy all the government debt outstanding. And 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 then if you, if you actually, if you look at what happened with QE, uh, that was a trillion dollars per year of buying bonds off the financial sector. Exactly the same capacity could have been used to buy two, three, four trillion dollars a year uh, to buy all the government debt outstanding and then write it off. Mm. which is quite within the power of the, of the central bank to do. When we first spoke about the idea of a debt jubilee, which would have been you and I talking a few years ago, I suspect, and I just, mm-hmm. at the time, I thought, you know, the, but that is just a ridiculous notion. It's it's so far-fetched, it's never going to happen. And yet we have more and more people talking about it, like, like for example, that Larry McDonald guy just there. Do you think yeah. he's right that there, there is momentum now that people are going, you know, something's not quite right here, and I'm sure it's to do with debt. Debt seems to be... You know, starting to take the blame, the wrong type of debt, but there's there's a, there's momentum now, and we will see change. Perhaps in perhaps it will be in our lifetime. I think it will be in our lifetime for two reasons. One one is that uh, you just can't have the level of uh, economic stagnation that's become commonplace, even in America with its revival. It's a pretty if even though they've got the lowest unemployment rate for ages, the level of economic activity is is embarrassingly low compared to the employment figures, and the uh, the, the lack of, of dynamism in the economy has been obvious for a long time. Yeah. Uh, the reason and, and, and inflation is going nowhere. So, in, yeah, so well, in fact, you, what debt you are holding is not losing any of its value. I, I'm expecting a bit of a spurt of inflation shortly, actually, for two reasons. One is because with the shortage of labour that is finally turning up, there's still a, you still haven't got to the back to the employment levels of the pre-2007 or even pre-2000 uh, point in the economy, but you're getting to the stage where labour is getting tight. And I think in that situation, American companies are going to have to offer higher wages to attract people to work for them, and you'll see a wage spike coming out of that. And at the same time, uh, some of the nonsense happening on global oil markets is likely to mean oil prices go up dramatically as well, and they will be passed on to some extent. So I can mm. see a bit of an inflationary surge coming through, but not a demand-driven one, a cost, or partly the labour one is, but a cost-pressure one as well from the, from the oil. Um, so that'll happen. But the economy is stagnant and um, you can't get a, a, 
even though there are obvious problems in continuing economic growth and an ecological point of view, if you haven't got the ecological pressure striking and you have this level of stagnation, then you get uh, rising levels of political um, discord in the society. And we've, you know, the level of political tension we've lived with for the last 10 years is not the sort of thing I think Europe, American society or most Western societies can sustain for 30, which is how long it took Japan to get uh, get out of the trap that it's in to some degree, uh, but it's still not completely free itself from it. But, and that is really because the level of private debt. Right. But it's the divisiveness, isn't it? Between It's the, it's the divide between rich and poor, which is creating this acidity in, uh, in society. I mean, that's why we're seeing this big left-right divide. And, uh, you know, because everything used to be the centre ground. But it, it all stems from... You know, people thinking we're not as well off as we used to be. Well, look at him over there. He's got this big house and seems to be getting better off. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 we didn't, we, we had fairly substantial levels of inequality back in the 50s, but it was, uh, if, if you look at the, how income is distributed, it follows what's called a power law. And that is that uh, if you if you graph the, the log of the amount of money on one axis and the log of the number of people on another axis, you get a straight line showing that there's a, a huge amount of people making a small amount of money and a tiny number of people make a huge amount of money. But it was, it, it was it, because incomes are rising in general and because the incomes of those at the bottom were sufficient to, to meet their costs and, and have a bit left over as well. There was no tension out of it. What we've had is, the, I think we've gone from the power law to a super power law where there's a, a massive amplification of that wealth at the top end through all the financial engineering we've seen. And at the same time, the squeeze on government spending has, has meant the way you used to compensate for people for being low income at the bottom has gone. And now they're getting to the point where they know they can't survive while they're seeing outrageous levels of wealth being frippery, fripper, wasted away in frippery by the by the upper class. Mm. So the, the tensions are huge. And these are the tensions that led to the fall of Rome. This is some sort of, uh, I'm not seeing us going through, a, you know, a, 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 you know, being attacked by the Visigoths, but <laughs> the extent to which uh, creditors' dominance of Roman society led to the debtors not uh, having any sense of commitment to Rome, uh, needing had to have a, a, a mercenary uh, force rather than a a citizens forced to defend the country, etc., the empire, etc., etc. That was a large part of the decline of Rome. And again, I'm not the best person on this. David Graeber and uh, and Michael Hudson are far better than me on this point. But if you don't address these problems, ultimately your society starts to fall apart. But does how does a universal basic income fix that problem? Because I would have thought if you've got if everyone's got uh, a bit more money in their pocket, then they've got the ability to spend more so they'll buy more which means those who own production or access to money will have the capability to sell more and we know uh, you know so they'll get richer and we know trickle down economics doesn't work so why would it happen with universal basic income won't it just push prices up uh make people the the, the top end richer and in fact couldn't it cause inflation as well and, and uh you know, well, while, the, while the, making the rich richer. The, the reason I come down to UBI rather than a job guarantee, but I can see them both being used, UBI at a lower level than a job guarantee, uh, is that I think ultimately labour is no longer going to be necessary for production. And we're going through a major uh, manifestation of that in terms of the development of low-level AI and, 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 and additive manufacturing. Right, but we're not uh, seeing it yet, are we? I mean, unemployment is at uh, near record lows in many parts of the world. We are, yeah, that's true. But I think 
a lot of the jobs are what uh, I mean, my good mate David Graeber, uh, by the way, congratulations to David announcing you're getting married soon. Um, uh, what David calls are you going to turn this into a request show? Should we play him a song? <laughs> <laughs> what, would, what would you like to hear? <laughs> I, I, I do, I do, I do, I do, I imagine. They're giving him a, giving him a Mamma Mia song. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the... Oh, you've totally thrown me off my bloody track there. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, maybe I should play a song while you get back onto it. I mean, my, my, the, the point I was making was, aren't we going to get the – with the universal basic income, how is it going to solve that, that rich-poor divide? Because aren't we just going to be spending more and therefore the rich people who have owned the means well, of production we, or, the, or, we, or supporting it, we're going to selling we more. Don't, if we don't um, bring about some way in which people's income can be earned uh, without labour, then there's going to be a mass of people who simply can't get a productive job and can't get a bullshit job either because a lot of these positions are going to disappear. Uh, and, and a lot of the work that people are doing today anyway, this is where, again, David's great little book, Bullshit Jobs, uh, just shows the extent to which people are doing jobs they know that either don't add to society or positively detract from it. Mm. And we, we, what I'd like to ask us to do as a species is recognise that given the technology we've developed now, we don't actually need people to be working for uh, employment in the sense we used to in the 19th century. Because if you didn't work in the 19th century, factory output went down. If you don't work in the 21st century, who gives a F about it? Because the job you're doing is a bullshit job anyway. And I want us to be able to say, let's get away from the bullshit jobs and start thinking about building some human creativity again. And that's why I see UBI not as being a, a payment to do nothing, but a payment to do anything. Uh, because I don't think there's any... In, in in the next 30 to 100 years, uh, the link we've had in the past between labour and actually producing output is going to be predict- pretty close to eliminated. Mm. And I think, we, I think I'd like us to be moving towards the direction we say, well, we, our species takes care of its own and hopefully the one of these takes care of the rest of the planet as well. Uh, we provide enough for people to be able to stay alive uh, and, and live, live comfortably out of the productive facilities of society, which have been created in, yes, by some individual entrepreneurs in a massive way, but fundamentally by the whole of society. Uh, We provide enough for you to be able to live moderately comfortably in that world. But if you want to make more, uh, go and get a, a, go and get a job, an actual creative productive job, or do something entrepreneurial and make your money that way. Uh, Because ultimately in terms of being labor for production, we simply don't need it. Mm. Do something productive or watch Richard and Judy on TV. The choice is yours. That's that. I guess that's the problem, isn't it? And it is going to be a hard sell, isn't it? Because yeah. I, mean, I mean, we assume government money goes to help the poor. So if you also give it to the wealthy, because that's the idea, isn't it? Everyone with, with a universal basic income, everyone's going to get the same. Everyone's going to get enough to live off. I mean, the, yeah. the, the general assumption, the way people think about money and the way governments use money is that you're going to be taking money away from the poor to give to the rich, almost, you know, and, and so the question is, how does that help the, you know, if you've got a, a finite pot of money, which we're saying there isn't necessarily, but if you're giving some of that to the rich, when it could be going to the poor, how the hell is that helping the income divide? Well, because, I mean, fundamentally, you're giving money to the poor that enables them to buy enough to stay alive, enough to have, you know, live to the level of comfort we expect for anybody in our societies. And, if you want to live above that level, then you have to do something other than, uh, you know, accept the payment for the for the UBI. Mm. Um, I mean, we, we, it's, but isn't it going to be hyperinflationary? Isn't it going to be just pushing prices up so much that uh, you you know you you've got this 
upward spiral? Well, again, we've had a downwards. We've got, we're trying to fight a downward spiral right now. We've got <laughs> yeah. you know, Australia just declared an inflation rate of zero two days ago. Uh, America's still in the doldrums. We're still fighting the wars of the 1970s and 1980s without knowing what caused those in the first place. Let's look at the current situation. You actually would like some inflation right now. Now, what I'm seeing is we have we have a capacity, certainly in the next century or two centuries, if we get through the ecological crisis we're going to experience, then we will have the productive capacity to produce a not not unlimited amount compared to what people's needs are, but a, a ludicrous amount compared to what they are. If we're doing, and this, this is going to sound space cadet, but we're going to be producing stuff on asteroids. We're going to take production off the planet in the next two centuries. In that world, how can you say you're only going to get a job if you work because the factories are floating around, you know, in, in, in low Earth orbit? Uh, it, is, it is not a world in which the 19th century vision of, you know, the working men and pride and the pride of the, when the work, uh, working men's position makes any sense anymore. And I want to be, start moving towards that world uh, rather than having to be forced into it uh, by social conflict at a later stage. Right. But it is going to be a world where there's some acceptance of, I mean, how you define modern monetary theory is, a, is another is a you know I, I guess is still an open book, but this acceptance that governments can create money without it necessarily being seen as debt that needs to be paid back that you know that money can be created in your currency uh, and uh, you know to to a point where it does cause inflation that would guess that would be the point where you'd start to hold back on that and mm. yet if we look at universal basic income and it would be the same for a debt jubilee you you look at the the you know people start to say the cost of that is a problem so we look at Finland, for example, gave participants uh, 560 euro a month for two years, uh, and it was said to increase the government deficit by 5% of GDP, and lots of other countries have declared it impossibly expensive. And yet, you know, we're saying, well, the government can create this money through their central bank if it, if it is that obvious. And obviously, people have been looking at this in great detail for the Finland experiment. Why are countries not seeing this? Because we're still stuck over the world where people believe that the government has to tax in order to spend in the very first instance. And then they say, we can't afford this this level. Uh, which, and that's why the modern monetary theory argument about the, the precedence, what actually comes first. Government spending comes first, taxation comes later. The question really is how much of what's produced do you want to be distributed uh, through government means rather than through private sector means? And my feeling is that uh, we, in our own societies at the moment, we go back to the 50s and 60s when we're talking about the societies at a healthy stage, both in terms of the distribution of income and the level of, of, of leverage in the society, uh, then government was spending of the order of 30% to depending on 50% of GDP. So we're already doing that much as you know, government financed activity. What I'm saying is let's, let's remain in that range, 30 to 50% range, but provide a lot of the money that the government is now creating through bureaucracy and uh, and you know in the and those bullshit the, jobs that you're talking about bullshit jobs in the government sector, which I've seen a few of, <laughs> and I've seen a few in the private sector as well, of course, but plenty in government. Do it through a UBI uh, and give people money that they can then spend, and that's of the, of the order of thirty to fifty percent of the revenue 
uh, demand in the economy is is created by and distributed through the government sector and the remainder through the private. Or is it always the answer that you just have more government jobs and some of those bullshit jobs, people just go, well, hang on a second, this job is bullshit, I need to change it. And because, and, you know, people can change their jobs and maybe that's, you know, that gets over the, the fear of sloth factor in that people are turning up for work. They, you know, we feel like they're doing a, an honest day's work and if it is a bullshit job they just need to find a more productive way of whatever it is they're doing in their patch mm, i mean I, I i have a strong aversion to bullshit jobs and uh, i would rather see as well we, we didn't have to do bullshit to get paid uh because again this is where the, ne- the neoclassical vision just completely collapses because they think everybody's paid their marginal product uh, which says every job has to be productive but again uh, not just looking at, at David's reach, but also the work by uh, Blair Fix, who's one of the most brilliant PhDs I've ever read. Uh, Blair looked at what actually causes income distribution, what makes sense of it. The, the only thing that makes sense of it is the scale of the hierarchy. The higher up you're at the hierarchy, the higher the amount of pay you get. And it's the hierarchy of society that decides the distribution of income. And um, we have let that hierarchy get far too large again because of financial sector leverage. Mm. Uh, we, we we have a real mess basically. I mean, but if, does if, universal if, basic income does that fix that issue? I mean, if we had a debt jubilee, mm. uh, and so we we wrote off a lot of the debt for people who were sort of you know in in middle income and lower income, and those people who had higher income, if they had a high level of debt, then they, we might write off half of it. They've still got the other half to to contend with. But that, but that meant mainstream society would be picking up their spending, the economy would be going gangbusters, uh, but we realised that also meant machines were doing half the job, so we needed to make sure there was still income coming into the economy, so that's where we provide the universal basic income. What's the incentive for people to actually work at that point? I mean, what's the, I mean that is my big question out of all of this. I know you've got uh-huh. this... this, this this, this grand vision that everyone will find true meaning in life, but I wonder whether they will. I wonder whether they will just watch daytime TV and put their feet up and let the machines do everything. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that is certainly a possible outcome, uh, but I think it's going to happen anyway. The question whether they put their feet up or they find themselves playing in the Hunger Games. And this has always been my comparison between the two situations. If we don't address the technological direction in which our society is moving, where the role of labour and production is almost eliminated, and therefore the capacity to earn an income through labour that's actually productive is equally eliminated. Mm. Unless we do something to address that, we're going to end up in a hunger games where you're trying to contain the anger of those who don't own the means of production against those who do. And we have the, you know, that's why I find the hunger games a remarkably prescient movie. I just don't want to see that become the real world. Yeah. Well, there certainly is a bit of a movement starting to emerge, isn't there? We are hearing people talking about the idea of a debt jubilee, more now than ever before, and universal basic income is being discussed now more in the mainstream media. But when we look at debt jubilee, we do have the issue that people are looking at, uh, still looking at uh, debt in the government sector and, and seeing that as what's holding back the next generation rather than the household sector. And that needs a big shift in uh, a big attitude change by the media and by society at large, doesn't it? Because they, they, they've got the wrong target. Let's give people some numbers on that front. I'm looking at the a chart of the level of private debt to GDP in America from 1834 to today, 
and the peak level of private debt was, and this is just the debt of the private non-financial sector, so households and non-financial corporations. That peaked at 170% of GDP back at the global financial crisis. It's now down at about 150%, having fallen to about 148%, so it's rising once more. The highest previous level of debt was 145% roughly uh, during the Great Depression, and that was caused by deflation. We actually began the Great Depression with about 90% of GDP as the private debt level and then falling prices and falling GDP, while debt was also falling, drove the ratio up to 140%. Look back through that and then in the, in the pre-war, in the pre-Second World War period, uh, the highest level of debt you see is 80% of GDP during the, um, uh, the First World War and before that as low as, as down as 10% of GDP back in the 1860s. So, um, my point where I think America was still a healthy economy was between the, the level of private debt between 1945 and 65, and that was between 40 and 70% of GDP in that range. Mm. So I want, I want to get back to that level, and that means something of the order in terms of a debt jubilee, creating an amount of money within used to cancel or to offset private debt of the order of one year's GDP in America. Now... That um, if you if you did that, um, you could do it. And the, the thing I would like to you wouldn't do, do it in a year, though. Pardon? You wouldn't do it in a year. No, not, no, you wouldn't do it in one year. <laughs> you give a trial run first of all and see what happened. Yeah. Okay. Do it. Do it over a period of time. But I'd do it in such a way. First of all, it's per capita. Everybody gets the same amount of money, regardless whether you're in debt or not. Therefore, it doesn't benefit those who speculated over those who didn't speculate. It's per capita, which means, of course, it benefits the poor much more than it benefits the rich. Uh, I would also have it that if you're in debt, then either the money has to be used to pay the debt down if that's feasible, or it becomes an offset account. So it offsets the debt burden, meaning that you, you know, the debt is there, but you have an offset against it, so it doesn't matter uh, because there's so many legal traps in terms of actually cancelling debt these days that you, the legal minefield is just... Enormous, so you may well have to use an offset rather than actually uh, a debt cancellation. Those who don't get debt, I would uh, what I would trial is saying a certain percentage of that, let's say it's seventy percent, has to be used to buy newly issued shares by the corporate sector, where those newly issued shares are used specifically to pay down corporate debt, mm. because corporate debt is also high. Corporate debt is about like the total American debt is. It's about reached about five times where they began the post-war period. Household debt's about ten times. Corporate debt's about twice, two or three times. I would want to reduce that level of corporate debt as well, but do it in such a way that you by by creating new shares, which then go to people who aren't in debt, and a lot of those would be the the working class end of the spectrum and poor end of the spectrum. They then end up owning share ownership. So what you have is a reversal of the inequality mm. caused by QE and the inequality caused by the high level of private debt in the first place. Right. And then we can all understand the share market. That's how we, we spend all our spare time. We all become uh, day traders. I'm not quite sure that's what we do, want to live in. <laughs> do it in such a way that it was uh, like you know, an equity share but not – and, you know, it's spread across many corporations, not, mm. not something which is going to get us all caught up in bloody share market speculation, which is the last mm. thing I want to no, say. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, I will look, um, I think, uh, you know, there's a revolution needed here. I think we need to start going to London, start gluing ourselves to buildings and uh, and uh, deposit ourselves in the middle of Waterloo Bridge and uh, bring all the traffic to a halt until it happens. What do you think of that idea? <laughs> uh, well, we'll catch you again very soon. Thank you. Thanks, Steve.
Okay, mate. And next time, uh, look, a pretty straightforward one. What makes some countries rich and some countries poor? And how can we fix that problem? That should uh, take us half an hour to solve that one. Uh, that's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.